case. Hope Not Hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backward thinking, virtue, sick virtue signaling, fake news crack. Yeah. There was a black shirt speaker trying to make himself heard above a howling mob and I very naively asked the loudest interrupter why he didn't keep quiet and listen to the meeting and he said we haven't come to listen, we've, we've come to smash it. My name is Daniel Sonamend and I am the author of We Fight Fascists, The 43 Group and Their Forgotten Battle for Post-War Britain. The 43 Group was an organisation formed in September of 1946 by Jewish ex-servicemen and women. One story goes that it was named after the number of members in the founding meeting. It identified as a Jewish ex-servicemen's organisation, but it was open to all. You didn't have to be Jewish, you didn't have to be an ex-serviceman, you just had to be anti-fascist and committed to stopping the fascists by any means necessary. Shortly after I first learnt about the 43 group in 2012, I asked my grandfather if he'd heard of it. Uh, well, I was driving him in a car and he said, heard of it, I was in it. And I swerved to look at him, unfortunately I didn't swerve the car. And I was like, you were in it? He said, yes, I was in it. Uh, the 43 group often sent its members to spy on meet fascist public meetings and my grandfather was a young man and they, he sort of went to report on fascist meetings. It was shocking to me and to my mother. He never talked about that to my mother either. So it was wonderful to discover this new bit of family history and this connection to this incredible organisation. Ladies and gentlemen, this great meeting is gathered here tonight to hear the policy and faith of fascism. We're currently at Ridley Road uh, in Dalston. Uh, because this uh, was the epicentre of a conflict uh, in 1947 uh, between the 43 Group, an organisation of Jewish ex-servicemen, and the fascists and supporters of Oswald Mosley. If you think the present system of things can really see you through, then it's idle for our new and virile faith of fascism to come to you with a new and revolutionary conception of politics, of economics, and of life itself. In the summer of 1947, anti-fascist organisations, including the 43 Group and their communist and other anti-fascist allies, clashed with the fascists. These clashes normally took place around public meetings where there would be a platform upon which a fascist speaker was standing and speaking, or a series of fascist speakers. They would be guarded by a cordon of stewards and sometimes as well, according to police, and they were surrounded by the crowds of supporters and people who were just casually watching and also anti-fascists. And these became a, a magnet for conflict between the fascists and the 43 group who wanted to knock the fascists off the streets by any means necessary. Now, at long last, our men of the war, our men of 1914, the grim ranks of our ex-servicemen again and again betrayed by politicians. One of the 43 Group's main tactics was to form a, a wedge-like shape and to drive straight through the, the crowds, through the cordons and smash into the fascists and not the speaker off the platform. If that happened, the police would close the meeting. Police would also close the meeting if there was serious disorder and there was a breach of the peace. And so what the 43 Group did was they would start fights 
were fascists in the crowd, they would insult them, they would sort of start attacking them, or even they'd pretend to have fights with each other, so that this would begin to cause disorder and they'd try to cause chaos in the crowd. And they would try to weaponize the crowd in various ways um, to sort of create pandemonium. Sometimes they use uh, flares or fireworks, you know, various forms of ways of just causing panic and mayhem, making the crowd uncontrollable and finding ways to get the police to close the fascist meetings. And they would also physically attack the fascists as well. Germany calling, Germany calling, Germany calling. The fascists were attracted to Ridley Road because this was the market road in Dalston, which was a major Jewish community, uh, lived in this area at that time. And Ridley Road was the main shopping, was the main shopping road. Uh, many of the shops were owned by Jewish people, many of the market stores were owned by Jewish people. So this was really the hub of Jewish life. And the fascists always believed that where there was many Jews, there would be anti-Semitism from their local, from the local Gentile population. And they came to the area to basically stir up trouble. Uh, the British Union fascists had been active here before the war and after the war an organisation called the British League of Ex-Servicemen and Women led by a man called Geoffrey Ham. It was our meet, public meetings were our only means of propaganda. He was, uh, there was no television, uh, just be coming in. So the public meetings were essential. If they were going to be broken up, if you just allowed them to be broken up, then you were completely silenced. The dilemma was that if you exercise your right under the law to eject interrupters after giving them a warning, you were portrayed by the press uh, as a gang of brutal thugs. Firstly, we have to understand that this is 1940. 1946, 1947, 1948, the years immediately after the Second World War. So the very fact that people were getting up on platforms and sort of saying the same things that the Nazis were saying caused outrage. And the audacity of what the fascists were saying, that they were blaming the Jews for things, that's what the Nazis had done, and that had led to the Holocaust, caused the purest anger amongst the Jewish population. There were these new sort of lies that the fascists were telling. They were saying the Jews didn't serve in the war, they were only profiteering from the war. Well, many you know, Jews were ex-servicemen, they fought in the war. Was, for the 43 group, formed by Jewish ex-servicemen, this was a real provocation because you know, they fought, they'd lost friends, uh, they were injured, they'd become POW, they'd been invalided out, they'd really, you know, fought for their country and they were proud to do so. So the fact that fascists were standing up and saying all the Jews were doing was profiteering from the war, they sent us to war with the Nazis, our cousins and our allies, and, and all they did, they did to profiteer from the war was a huge insult to the Jewish community, a huge insult to the Jewish ex-servicemen. It made them incredibly angry and it was therefore they decided that they had to respond in a way that expressed this anger. The men and women who formed the 43 group believed it was vital to learn the lessons of history. Many people in Britain in the post-war years saw the fascists as a joke, but the Nazis had been seen as a joke in Germany until they weren't a joke. And so even though the chances are that the fascists weren't going to have much success in the post-war years, we can say that with the benefit of hindsight, but that was not apparent to, and that was not obvious to the 43 group and people in the post-war years. They'd seen the destructiveness of fascism. So the idea that they would ever let that happen in their own home was you know, something they were not prepared to tolerate. And even if it was just a few cranks, a few cranks can get, you know, get up on a platform and get meetings of thousands. And you know, it can just grow and grow from there. You have to confront the fascists with the fi your fists, they would say, because that's far better than confronting them with tanks. And after their meetings, they marched past 
shouting, get rid of the yids, get rid of the yids. And other times he said, uh, the Dalston Tomatola small synagogue, which was actually five doors away from where we lived, had its windows smashed by stones. They come past another time singing the horse vessel, the German Nazi song. The majority of the members were Jewish ex-servicemen. The group identified as Jewish, it had a Star of David on its logo. But besides that, it was wanted to be as open to everybody as possible. It had a very strict policy of no politics. You could be conservative, you could be a communist, everybody was welcome. You could be Zionist, you could be anti-Zionist. All perspectives were welcome, um, so long as you're anti-fascist. In order to hold together an organization which had so many Jews with so many disparate political opinions, actually talk, discussing politics was banned because the group wanted that everybody to, to come together and work together against fascism and not to let other political discourse get in the way. The most important thing politically was to deal with the fascists. Then we can all argue amongst ourselves, but when the people who are out there who pose a threat, who would happily put us all in camps or kill us all, pose a threat, we need to first come together and fight that before we can argue amongst ourselves. We're dead scared. We were afraid because we were, we would get beaten up. Pure, not for doing anything and not for saying anything, but looking Jewish. Uh, the group was led by two men, a chap called Jerry Flamberg, a former paratrooper and prisoner of war, a real leader of men, led from the front, very charismatic, a very colourful character. In the heat, of the heat of the battle, he's a real leader of men and was really the sort of the figurehead and the sort of the most motivating force and really inspired the 43 group. The other, the other chairman of the group was a man called Jeffrey Bernard. Flamberg was sort of from a poorer background and less well educated. Bernard was more middle class, better educated. He was in the film business. He carried a cane as he had, was uh, shot in the leg at Dieppe. They called him tall, dark and handsome Jeffrey Bernard. But his talent was that he was an organisational genius and it was he that really uh, built an or the successful organisation that the 43 group became. He split the, the group into different uh, sections based upon areas and he brought about the publication of the group's newspaper on guards and really was the key man behind the group's sort of organisational uh, capabilities. Another key member of the group was a chap called Harry Bidney. He ran the East End section. He was, he was a short man, he was a former warrant officer, served in Burma. He was a spiv, he was a wheeler dealer. He used to sell nylon stockings at the back of a pub. He always had various different hustles on the go. Even though he was a small man, he was always right in the thick of the fighting. He was also a very efficient and capable intelligence operative. Very rarely, for the times, uh, openly homosexual. Bidney's sidekick was a 20-year-old guy called Jack Myrovich, who was a huge guy, big street fighter, a big brawler, it would often take several police officers to bring him down and take out five or six men all in one go. And Bidney and Myrovich led the sort of very tough cell of the East End section of the group who has some very um, tough members including two brothers called the Goldberg brothers, Philly and Joe Goldberg. Uh, they were pressers in a clothing factory. Uh, they had fists like mallets. They weren't big guys but they had these huge fists and huge muscles and they were always, they were rough guys. They were always getting arrested, always up to no good. They were probably as thick as two planks. Uh, there's a story that one of them saw a fascist he wanted to confront uh, in a sitting in a restaurant and instead of going through the door he went straight through the plate glass window. Another time the brothers, one of the brothers was arrested and was in court and the other brother pretended to be him. They were identical twins but one had a scar so it was very easy to tell them apart but they were some of the toughest, the group's toughest fighters. Often the group tried to hold them back and only set them on the fascists they really needed to take care of because they would go for anybody, they had no fear at all. 
another guy in that cell was Vidal Sassoon, the hairdresser, who wasn't quite so gung-ho in the fighting. He needed to protect his hands, which were his livelihood, but he would often go into battle with a pair of scissors and was very, very much good for a fight. Uh, that cell also had a woman called Julie Sloggan, who was this very tough woman who, the story goes, originally they thought they had to protect her from the fascists, then they realized they had to protect the fascists from her. And the group was full of some, quite a few of these violent women who really would throw themselves into the middle of the fighting. Nazis had won the war, the English fascists would have been the people knocking on our door and taking us away. It might seem amazing to us today that the fascists had any chance of gaining an audience through relying on anti-Semitic politics in the wake of the Second World War and the knowledge of the Holocaust. But actually, anti-Semitism was still a major prevalent part of British society after the war. There was still, there was some expressions of sympathy for the Jews of Europe when the discoveries of the uh, concentration camps became known. And there was a brief wave of philo-Semitism, but this was only very brief. And sympathies for the Jews of Europe did not necessarily translate into sympathies for Jews in Britain. An example of how strong anti-Semitic feelings may, remained uh, was in the end of 1945, a petition in Hampstead, a very middle-class area of North London, was passed around. The petition was uh, started by two middle-class women and it called for refugees living in the area to be moved out so that their homes could be given to returning ex-servicemen. The petition itself had, there was no anti-Semitic language in it, but the campaign around it was deeply anti-Semitic. There were very anti-Semitic letters to the local newspaper and people in shops. Signatures for the petition were collected in shops and many people would go to shops and were being bullied into signing with people with, you know, spitting anti-Semitic invective. And so it showed that there was still this real sense of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism still existed after the, after the Second World War. Also, there was the current, the current goings-on in Palestine where Jewish paramilitaries were fighting against the British forces in that area. And this also provoked a new wave of anti-Semitism. So when the fascists began holding their meetings in 1947 and began talking about what the Jews of Palestine were doing and sort of making connections to the Jews in the UK, they had a very strong audience and people were really responding to what they were saying and they were really reflecting thoughts and feelings that many people had about the Jews in Britain. Now, this did not necessarily translate into sympathy for fascists. And you know, Britain was very aware that, the British public was very aware that they had gone to war against fascism and they'd just spent the last few years defeating fascism. So this, this did not mean they had sympathy for the fascists, but it also didn't mean that disliking the fascists meant they had to be sympathetic to the Jews. The British public felt that they could hate the Jews and the fascists in equal measure. There was no problem with that. London after the Second World War was a drab, bombed out place. It was Dalston, Ridley Road, you know, bomb sites were strewn across the area. If there wasn't a gap in the, there wasn't a gap between a couple of shops or houses, there would be a ruined house and it was full of bomb sites. People were off crammed into homes, you know, with, you know, maybe an outdoor toilet and, you know, 
two or three families sharing a, sharing a, a flat or a home. It was not a pleasant place to live. This was also a time of rationing and austerity. Uh, bread had never been rationed in the war, but it was actually went on the rationing uh, for a time in 1947. This was a really hard time for people living in London. And although there was the sort of hope of the New Jerusalem, which came with the Attlee government, the NHS and the welfare state, this was still a time of, you know, people used to say, the peace is bringing us down, uh, the peace is exhausting us. People would complain at shops about not being able to get, not being able to get the food they need, and other people turning around and saying, don't you know there's a war on? And things were compounded in the, in the start of 1947, when the country had one of its worst winters on record. This was only made worse by the fact that the coal stock had frozen to the ground, they couldn't move it, so people weren't even being allowed to heat their homes. So this was really a time of misery and a time of hardship for many people in Britain. The, sort of the joys of victory faded pretty quickly as people had to come to terms with the peace. Again and again betrayed by politicians. People were very much happy to be pointed towards scapegoats for the issues that post-war Britain was struggling with. And often, always, the Jews were seen as the scapegoats. There was great housing shortages. And the Hampstead Alien Petition you know, was very much responded to that. You know, there was serious housing shortages. And you know, what the petitioners were saying was, the Jews had the houses, the foreigners had the houses, they should be glowed to British people. During the winter fuel crisis in, in, at the start of 1947, the person who was blamed for the fuel shortages was Manny Shinwell, a Jewish minister. Rationing brought up the notion of the black marketeer, that there were people who were cheating the ration in some way. British press only tended to report on black marketeering stories when the person who was caught was Jewish, even though Jews weren't uh, black marketeering any more than anybody else was. When the fascists started you know, putting up their platforms in 46 and 47, they were very much playing on genuine issues that people were having and then finding ways of making the case that it was the Jews' fault and people were, you know, this made sense to a lot of people in Britain. The 43 group responded to the fascism with violence and that might seem extreme to some people but you have to understand who they were and what they had just seen. These were predominantly Jewish people who had served in the war and therefore had seen firsthand the destruction of the battlefields and some had even seen concentration camps. The, the spiritual leader of the 43 group was a man called Rabbi Leslie Hardman who had been a Jewish chaplain in the war and was the first chaplain into the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and it had fallen to him to bury thousands and thousands of bodies and give them a proper Jewish burial. It was an experience that utterly traumatised him throughout his life. When eventually I entered the camp, the first person I saw I met was a female who seemed to be wandering dangerously. You know, I couldn't in, in, in determine her age. When she saw the Marine David emblems on my uniform, she attempted to throw her arms around me. Her appearance was so repulsive. She was so emaciated that I instinctively stepped back, but immediately regained my blunt balance to prevent her from falling when I tried to sidestep her. She then said to me, Yiddish, I told her I wasn't going to go away from her. 
As we walked further into the camp, I suddenly froze. For in front of me, several people were lying on the ground. I asked, why, why were they sleeping there? The girl replied, they were dead, sir. Now the spell, which until now appeared to have dumped all my senses, suddenly broke. It completely changed him as a man. And when Hardman became the spiritual leader of the 43 group, he would often, he'd come down here to Ridley Road when the 43 group were holding a platform and speak on the platform, or when they were attacking meetings, he'd like set up shop somewhere and so that they'd have a place so they can come back and get refreshments or somewhere. Um, he'd like be in a hall or somewhere. The support he gave to this, the 43 group's militaristic response really shows how utterly abhorrent the group found the Nazis' crimes and how abhorrent they found the fact that the fascists were sort of back on the streets. You know, six million Jews were murdered. Many of the members of the 43 group had family murdered. Um, you know, just one day you're getting letters from Germany or Poland, the next day nothing. Some have been refugees from Germany. The Holocaust was no distant thing. This was something that happened to, had happened to their families and happened to their community. You know, to come to terms with the fact that six million Jews have been murdered in Europe, I mean, that is one hell of a clout. And so to, you know, many Jews were watching newsreel footage of like the, uh, the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp or the Nuremberg trials, and then were coming out and seeing fascists on street corners selling newspapers. I mean, how could you not respond with utter fury? And so that, when, to take the example of Rabbi Leslie Harmon, this is a man who, who was, he was a, a rabbi in the community, he was, had a you know, significant standing, was very well respected. And his choice to support a militant organization really conveys the sense of anger that these people, that these men and women had. The sense of fury that they had, that they had to respond to the fascists with violence. Because the fascists were basically saying, not enough of you lot died. And the, there was this sort of sense, a stereotype that Jews before the war, especially older generations, were sort of, keep your head down, we don't want to cause any trouble. But these, the 43 group were part of a younger generation who saw what, what that leads to. And they took inspiration from, let's say, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And they thought, no, you have to stand up, you have to fight. It doesn't matter if you're causing controversy. It doesn't matter if you're going to be, it doesn't matter if you're going to be wounded. It doesn't matter if you're going to be sent to prison. You have to stand up. You have to fight for yourself. You have to fight for your family and you have to fight for your community. It's not just that it was a very different time. You have to understand what the 43 group from our perspective today might seem extreme, but you have to understand the context of who they were, what they had experienced, what they witnessed. And that, and it is through that that we understand why it is they felt they had to do what needed to be done. The crimes of the Nazis so clearly illustrated what happens when fascism succeeds and takes power and who suffers because of it. And so that mean, meant for them that everybody needs to come together to fight fascism. And so the 43 group decided from the outset that all were welcome regardless of politics. You could be conservative, you could be a socialist, you could be a liberal, you could be Zionist, you could be anti-Zionist, you were welcome in the 43 group. Because everybody else can have their disagreements and have their arguments, 
after you deal with those people who want to put you all in camps, who don't want any difference. And what the 43 group did, what their um, chairman Jeff Bernard uh, ruled, was that there would be no political discussion within the 43 group. Uh, at the headquarters or on missions or anything like that, you don't discuss politics. You don't make someone feel unwelcome because of their politics, because they don't agree with you about certain things. And also, you don't want there to be any form of sort of anyone falling out over politics. You understand that you're all together because you're all against fascists and everybody can be against fascists. And the 43 group was very willing to work with other organisations that were willing to stand against fascists, including the Communist Party. They frequently sent 43 group members to guard communist uh, meetings and they sort of stood together against the fascists here at Ridley Road. And in a, this was in part problematic because that meant that the 43 group often got confused with the communists. Um, the police and the press often were not able to tell them apart or deliberately didn't try to tell them apart. But the 43 group, when the communists were attacked in the press, for instance, the journalist Rebecca West blamed the troubles at Ridley Road on the communists trying to stir up the Jewish community because of the upcoming elections. The 43 Group's newspaper On Guard basically decried her comments and said the Communist Party is one of the only organisations that standing up and putting up platforms against fascism, they should be applauded. It's in the 43 Group's newspaper On Guard that we really see the 43 Group's politics and worldview shine through. They decided not to make On Guard a news sheet about the 43 Group and instead made a newspaper about fascism and anti-fascism and anti-prejudice around the world. They reported on the activities of the fascists in Britain, often uh, getting that information from their spies. They re reported the activities of fascists in Europe and in South America. But they also reported on the struggle of black people in South Africa and in the South in America. And also they featured black writers uh, here in Britain. They were writing, On Guard was around the time of uh, when the Empire Windrush first docked and the first wave of uh, West Indian Caribbean migrants came to Britain and the 43 group was very alive to the colour bar and the prejudice against black people and they really believed that the fight against fascism meant the fight against prejudice of all forms and everybody should stand together. And for instance when the African-American actress Hilda Sims was banned from staying in a British hotel. The 43 Group reported that's her story. They also featured an article from Paul Robeson, the African-American singer and activist, and they really tried to say that the fight against prejudice is all our fight, so we will stand up not just for the Jews, but for everybody else who wants to live in this country. Oswald Mosley returned in 1947 to set up the Union Movement. He was very much able for a few months to build on the success that the fascists had, had following the Battle of Ridley Road when their meetings had attracted thousands. However, two meetings in the summer of 48, one in the east end of London on, um, uh, during May Day March, and then a month later at a huge Battle of Brighton, uh, the 43 group had torn into and ripped apart the fascist meeting. As a result of that, Mosley began to lose his enthusiasm for bringing fascism back to Britain and he began to sort of look look abroad to where his uh, believing he his future lay as the sort of the leading man of uh, European fascism. As a result of that his, uh, the union movement began to lose momentum and members began to leave and they became less and less enthusiastic organizing their meetings and one major loss to the fascists was in the summer of 48 the state of Israel was founded. The fascists had done so much to capitalise on the violence, the conflict between the Jews and the British in Palestine. But once the British left Palestine, that was no longer there. 
And so this major news source that had really sort of kept anti-Semitism alive in this country just disappeared from the front pages of the newspaper. And so the fascists lost a major recruiting tool. This came at the same time of these, ma of these major defeats on May Day and in Brighton. And as a result of that, the union movements of the fascists began to lose energy. And from summer of 48 to around 51, where Mosley left Britain for at least a decade, they just petered out. As a result of this, the 43 group in the summer of 1950 became very aware that the fascists were defeated and that their mission had been successful and their work was done and they decided that the time had come to disband. It changed me as a person. It made me realise that I am what I am. Uh, very proud to be a Jew. Not sorry for what I did. On the contrary, I'm very pleased with what I did. Because somebody had to do it. Standing here in Ridley Road Market on a Friday evening as the market traders take down their stalls, it's, it's a really um, profound moment for me as I think back upon the 43 group and my seven years spent studying them and writing about them. Because 70 years ago, my own family would have been sort of closing up shop for the night. It's a Friday night, so they would have, uh, the Jewish community, the stands would have been closed up earlier, so the Jewish community to go and prepare for Friday night dinner on Shabbat and Sabbath. But they did so under the fear that, you know, this was a community which fascists were willing to target again, that they might shut up their shop and come back the next day and see a swastika on their shop, or the word, letters PJ, which to perish Judah. And to know, or to know that, you know, if they were to walk home, they might be accosted by somebody. You know, this was a place of immense community, but that community was under attack. And in the summer of 1947, it was not a safe space for them. And what the 43 group did was they stood up for that community. And they decided that they were willing to sacrifice. You know, they were willing to go to prison. They were willing to go to hospital so that it would be known to those who would attack their community that the Jewish community would not take things lying down anymore, that they would stand up for themselves and that they were no longer the easy targets. And that, you know, sacrificing all the time when they weren't at their jobs and were willing to risk injury, their freedom, their lives, to protect their community and to fight the fight against fascism is an incredibly inspiring thing for me. And it has been a real privilege over the past seven years to tell their stories. These people who I have, whose company I have loved spending my time in. They are fun, interesting, in, intuitive, ingenious individuals. They saw hate in the world. They saw prejudice and they decided that they were going to stand up against it. And I continue to be inspired by that and I will do forever.